Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, now that the Marco Island Historical Museum is open, one of the most significant Native American artifacts created here may be returning home. You know, this is a part of Florida's prehistoric heritage, and I think if they have safe and accurate housing for it, that it belongs here in, in Florida, where Floridians can come and learn about Florida's past. We'll remember old country grocery stores in Indian River County and look at how history has affected the lives of the children of Cuban immigrants. There were a lot of members of our family and of our extended friends and everything who, you know, every year for New Year's, you'd say Happy New Year, and then El Año Que Venga in Cuba, which means next year in Cuba. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Members of the Marco Island Historical Society are hoping that this may be the year of the cat for them, the year that the Calusa Indian sculpture called the Key Marco Cat is returned to them for permanent display in the new Marco Island Historical Museum. Visitors to the brand new facility encounter an outdoor replica of a Calusa Indian village before setting foot in the museum. Craig Woodward is director of the Marco Island Historical Society, served on the construction committee for the new museum, and is currently chairman of the exhibit committee. We knew we wanted to have some kind of a shock, kind of an eye appeal from the road. Uh, We didn't want it to look sort of like a government-type building. And we wanted people to go, wow, what's that, and and want to see it. So when you drive down the road, you look over and you see a shell mound that's been built. And we built an estuary system around the shell mound, which lowered that area and served as our water management area. We put cypress trees and native plants down there. Then you have the shell mound. And then on the shell mound, you have a lagoon area, which has a waterfall at one end and a fish weir at another end and a bridge crossing it to a cheeky hut. And then you have this white shell throughout. And then you have the buildings. And the buildings are literally, uh, there are three buildings to look sort of like a village. 
and the village had in the roofs of the buildings have uh, thatch and we didn't go with the you know the seminal thatch we actually went to a product that they use at Disney World and it's an extruded plastic but it looks like the real thing and people cannot believe it's not thatch so you have these thatch buildings on the shell mound with native trees and uh, and the lagoon and and you just you to get to the shell mound you have to cross a bridge from the parking lot so you leave that sort of modern world of the parking lot to the shell mound and you enter sort of a whole new world so it, it, it we wanted to bring the outs the inside out so in like a regular museum where it's all inside a lot of our museum is outside too before entering the Marco Island Historical Museum, visitors are greeted by a human-sized bronze statue of the Key Marco Cat, one of the most enduring symbols of the extinct Calusa tribe of Florida. Inside the museum is a replica of the six-inch wooden figure. Woodward hopes that the original Key Marco Cat, which is currently stored in a Smithsonian Institution warehouse, will be returned to Marco Island, where it was created. And the Key Marco Cat is at the Smithsonian. And it is, um, it has, it has been to, Mar it has been to Cara County twice. It came to Cara County, it was at Naples on display on a, as a visiting uh, item, and then it came to Marco Island. And when it was in Marco, there was I think eighteen thousand people came to see it. So there's a huge amount of interest in having it here. We have a vault that's built, it's waterproof, it has uh, four-hour rated glass windows. It's a it's basically a poured cement building inside of the museum that's housed for house for that purpose, and we hope to get it. But we're, we're a ways. We have to become an accredited museum. We have to get all of our other displays and stuff up, and you know, because we're, we're obviously new. Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on the east coast of Florida in 1513 and was so enamored with what he saw that he named it La Florida, the land of flowers. When Ponce de Leon sailed to southwest Florida in 1521, he was attacked by the Calusa and he died from the wounds they inflicted. Within about two centuries, the Calusa were extinct, having died of diseases brought by the Europeans, been captured as slaves, or been absorbed into the Seminole tribe when they arrived in Florida in the 1700s. A large portion of the new Marco Island Historical Museum is dedicated to remembering the Calusa. Because Marco was a key part of the Calusa empire, and the, most of the wooden items that were found about the Calusa, including the, mark, the famous Key Marco cat, and many masks, wooden masks, a lot of netting, and things that in other parts of the uh, southwest Florida have uh, deteriorated, were found in Old Marco in what was then Key Marco. And those, those items were excavated in 1896, and then a lot of those items, 2,000 items, left Marco and have never returned. And so... The, this building was sort of built kind of like the movie Field of Dreams, build it and they will come, thinking that we would build this for the Calusa. And so the whole museum has sort of a, um, a feel of the Calusa, and it's um, a part of all of it, the roofs of the buildings, the shell mound, the lagoon, and the main buildings, the main part of the museum is devoted to the Calusa and to hopefully the items we can get from that expedition. In addition to the Key Marco cat, the Calusa produced many brightly colored ceremonial masks and other carved objects, making them one of the most artistic tribes to inhabit Florida prior to European contact. One of the things that was interesting about the Calusa is because they lived in this very rich um, environment with the estuary system. Uh, the fish was plentiful, shellfish was plentiful, so they didn't really spend any time 
worrying about food. They were not an agricultural tribe, so they were able just to get food and had plenty of time. So they had devoted a lot of time to artistic things, which is, you know, we're finding and it's fascinating to us these days. The 1896 excavation of Calusa artifacts on Marco Island was led by archaeologist Frank Hamilton Cushing. Rachel Wentz is regional director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. The site is significant for several reasons. First of all, it was one of the first kind of large-scale organized archaeological endeavors in the state. This is when archaeology was first blossoming in the state. And so this was a very formal, put-together, funded expedition. And so that makes it unique. You know, this was when archaeology was being kind of transitioning from novice excavations or the kind of semi-novice excavations of C.B. Moore to formal trained archaeologists. So that makes it significant. Also, the finds make it significant. It turns out that the site that they were excavating had become saturated. It was in kind of a marshy area. In fact, there's some wonderful descriptions of their working conditions where they were mired down in the muck and the mosquitoes and the flies and, you know, these horrible conditions that they worked under. But when they were digging through the muck, they started coming up with all of these beautifully preserved wooden artifacts. And it was this muck that preserved those artifacts. And it made it possible for these wooden, beautifully wooden carved objects to be preserved for quite a long time. In fact, I think the dating of the site spans from about 300 AD up until 1500 AD, um, some of the various radiocarbon dates. And of course, the kneeling cat or feline is one of the most famous objects that was recovered. Some of the Calusa objects uncovered on Marco Island are displayed at the British Museum in London, the University Museum of Philadelphia, and the Florida Museum of Natural History in Gainesville. As Dr. Wenz explains, many of the artifacts uncovered in 1896 quickly deteriorated when moved from the protective muck into the hot Florida sun. They didn't have the techniques that we now have in conservation of objects, and they didn't have the understanding that when you remove something from a wet site in particular, you have to maintain that moisture. Once it dries out, a lot of times it will just crumble and disintegrate. And unfortunately, many of the masks, that's what happened to them. The feline was made out of a very hard wood. The one um, good aspect of the expedition was the artist that they had along with them, Sawyer. And when these objects came out of the ground, Sawyer painted depictions of them. So we do still have artist renderings of these colorful masks, believed to be Calusa. And um, but it was the the feline was one of the few objects that actually was able to be maintained and is still maintained. Maintaining and preserving the Calusa culture is a primary focal point of the new Marco Island Historical Museum, but it's not the only one. While permanent exhibits are still being created for the new space, eventually visitors will walk from the Calusa displays into a room dedicated to pioneer culture. Craig Woodward. They'll go through a full Calusa village, which we hope will give them more of an immersive feel like they're actually in there. And we're having life uh, form casts made uh, to have life-size people that look you know, like the Calusa. So that should be very stunning. And then they will leave there and go into the next room, which is the Pioneer Room, uh, which started on Marco about 1870 and the with the clam digging and a lot of... Um, a pineapple. There was a huge pineapple boom, and we had a lot of pineapple. We had a railroad to Marco to get a lot of these products uh, taken off the island. So we have that whole era, including the Barfields, who helped create Collier County. 
and that's the next room. In another room of the Marco Island Historical Museum, the period of development from the 1960s to the present will be explored. The Deltona Corporation was invited by the Collier family, who owned most of Marco, uh, to come and develop Marco Island. They were the Mako brothers from Miami, who were one of the largest builders in Florida. And so they, they had a master plan for Marco. And so the last room would be devoted to the master plan and the environmental problems that they ran into in the, in the early 70s as the environmental movement got stronger and ma mangroves and the ecology issues became paramount. They ran into development issues, which went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in litigation. And so that whole story would be told in that room. Although many of the permanent exhibitions of the Marco Island Historical Museum are still being created, they recently held their grand opening with local dignitaries, children's activities, hamburgers and hot dogs, and live music by J. Robert Hotailing. Oh, I remember the flowing river Far and wide is the eye can see Sawgrass flower, ancient stand of cypress trees. While the future exhibits of the Marco Island Historical Museum will provide a more complete overview of the local history of Southwest Florida, there are currently traveling exhibitions on display, including the photography of Clyde Butcher. Craig Woodward. The exhibits actually were about 90% done with the Calusa room as far as the actual uh, going into what real literally architectural drawings of the cases and what's going to be in the cases and the that that'll start construction uh, as soon as we sign off on that probably in the next month and then they'll start working on that we should start to see some product by the end of the year. This, of course, all of this is handmade, tailored for us. It isn't, you can't just buy it off the shelf. So we should start to see it. We hope to have quite a bit of it up by next season um, so people can see how it's evolving. The, uh, that's, we decided to go into the Calusa room first with the exhibits. That's about $700,000 worth of money in that, in that room. Um, and then before we did the Pioneer Room, which will be next, and then the Deltona Room, which will be last. But meantime, to keep our museum open and interesting, we're relying on traveling exhibits. And we opened with the Carlton Ward exhibit on Florida Cowboys, which was fabulous. His, and uh, and now we right now we have the Ted Morris exhibit on the Florida Lost Tribes, and we have an exhibit on the plumage of uh, the killing of the birds in the Everglades for, for women's hats and fashion. And then we have a Calusa exhibit, and we also have the, uh, as you mentioned, the photography from Clyde Butcher. So the museum is packed, you know, and we've had tremendous turnout. As the displays at the new Marco Island Historical Museum continue to develop, many Floridians hope that the key Marco cat will return home to be permanently displayed here. Archaeologist Rachel Wentz agrees that it's a good idea to bring the artifact, originally labeled the Panther Lion God, back to Marco Island. You know, this is a part of Florida's prehistoric heritage, and I think if they have safe and accurate housing for it, that it belongs here in, in Florida, where Floridians can come and learn about Florida's past and see these objects themselves. I mean, it's, it's always a thrill to see an actual artifact that was excavated from a site as opposed to just artist renderings or reproductions of it. So yes, I think it would be a big boom for Florida archaeology and prehistory in general to have that object return and have people be able to visit it. 
We spoke with Craig Woodward, director of the Marco Island Historical Society, and Rachel Wentz, regional director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about great events like our annual meeting and symposium, look at historic photographs, order great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. Americans saw Florida in the 1920s through newsreels of land booms, bathing beauty pageants, and new architectural styles. Redefined and reimagined once again, Florida became a hot spot Americans wanted to visit, a dream setting with places like Miami Beach, Boca Raton, and Coral Gables as its symbols. In Florida and California, the Spanish mission style ushered in a new identity. Why travel to Barcelona? when one could drive the Model T to Sarasota or Palm Beach and be surrounded by buildings that looked like they belonged in Andalusia and Castile. Architects such as Addison Meisner created a style, Mediterranean Revival, as Americans incorporated the words patio, plaza, and loggia into their lexicon. Along the shores of Key Biscayne, the fabulously wealthy Charles Deering wished to recreate palaces he had admired in Italy and Spain. Christened in 1916, his 40-room fantasy, Via Vizcaya, borrowed architectural inspiration as well as purchases of tapestries, paintings, and pottery from Spain. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. It was bingo day at the Baptist Retirement Center in Vero Beach when two residents excused themselves to talk with Janie Gould about old grocery stores and markets in Indian River County. I.J. Anderson and Alice Crawford Vickers are octogenarians who grew up in Indian River County. Their families became acquainted eight decades ago. Anderson's parents owned three small grocery stores, and Vickers' family had the Crawford Fish Camp and Market. Alice grew up in a two-story house that still stands near Riverside Cafe in Vero Beach. We had fun. We had a ping-pong table. All the boys came over to play ping-pong. My sister and I had to work, too. We helped them clean fish and boil lobsters and all of that. One time we had a freeze, and the fish just floated on top. Well, the tourists got so excited. All the boats were just about out because the tourists wanted to come out and row in the river. 
but we have two boats left. Vera took one and I took one. And we rowed out and the tourists picked up the dead fish. And by the time you pick one up, it'll come back to life. But I remember rowing. It was hard work and it was cold. Did you uh, clean a lot of fish that day? I didn't clean any that day. I was exhausted. When I married Don, I promised to clean all the seafood and he promised to kill all the game that he caught. It worked out real well. What kind of game did he bring in? Quail, rabbit, deer, turkey, you name it. Anderson's father had grocery stores in Fellsmere, Wabasso, and Sebastian. They were part of a chain called the Pleasing Food Stores. They also had a small group in Bureau Beach. Cox on one side of the railroad track, then they had John on the other side of the tracks, also with Platt. What did your dad sell? Complete line of groceries and meats. Then in Fellsmere, we did a little alligator tail selling also in hides back when it was a little bit illegal. Illegal? It was wild. I wouldn't say it is illegal because sometimes the sheriff would be out there helping us. Did you work in the grocery stores when you were growing up? Sweeping floors and sacking grits and groceries of all kinds. Can you think of anything you sold that isn't available anymore? Salt mullet. You don't see that. Very few places will stock it nowadays, but used to buy it by the tub. Right from the Indian River? Yeah. You mentioned alligators. Other wild game? No, didn't have time for the other game. We did mostly shooting game when we had time off. Quail, snipe. What's snipe? It's another bird. You just don't want to go on a snipe hunt. Why? I don't think there's any such thing as a snipe. But Jimmy will tell you the story about when you go on a snipe hunt and what happens to you. You have to hold a burlap bag to catch them in, you know, after you shoot them down. You'll be holding that bag all night. There is no snipe. You just sit there and hold the bag. You keep waiting for the snipe that never shows up. Where did the produce come from? Was that local? Mostly local. I mean, you didn't get things from Peru or Chile or California? No, no, we didn't import any of that stuff. It wasn't grown locally. We didn't get it. Do you remember the sugar mill in Felsmere? Yes, I remember the sugar mill. Is that where you got the sugar that you sold in your grocery stores? No, most of the sugar, we had to buy it from one of the wholesalers. But they would get it from the sugar mill. Florida Crystal Sugar. Did you sell sugar cane? Once in a while, we'd get three or four stalks of sugar cane and sell it by the stalk. How did it taste? Chewy, but it was good and sweet. I liked it. Had to peel it. That's what I didn't like about it. Kind of like a banana, except tougher, I bet. Did the stores have everything on display, or was it behind counters? Behind counters to start with. They say that that's what caused people to start buying more, was when everything was put on display, so they could buy things they didn't know they wanted. A lot of times you put it on a display out there, and you would miss half of it. A pair of overalls would carry two bags of sugar or something, and just walk right off the floor. Some of the merchandise had legs. Right. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. The children of Cuban immigrants to Florida are in many ways both Cuban and American. Bill Dudley has this look at Floridians who are sometimes described as living on the hyphen. There were a lot of members of our family and of our extended friends and everything who, you know, every year for New Year's, you'd say Happy New Year. And then, el año que venga en Cuba, which means next year in Cuba. 
Prize-winning novelist Carrie Dad Ferrer grew up in Miami with Cuban parents who had emigrated in the late 1950s at the start of the revolution. Myra Mendible, professor of cultural studies at Florida Gulf Coast University, was five years old when she left Cuba with her parents. She remembers her mother proudly showing her the deeds to properties left behind. She kept everything in a little metal box, which I still have, and you know she would pull it out as this was her little treasure that she had for me. That was what she could leave for her children, and she would always emphasize that, look, you know, this is where I keep our titles. You know, when Fidel dies and you can go back, you can reclaim this that, that we left behind. Although the girls lived in different parts of Miami, each discovered, as did many children of exiles, that they were different from the Americans around them and on the TV screen. First of all, I didn't look like the people on television. The only person I looked like was the one on the Mickey Mouse show. What was her name? Annette Finicello. She had the dark curly hair. I think she was Italian ancestry. And so I used to love her because she was the only person on TV that kind of looked like me. Later on, as a teenager, she found herself increasingly at odds with conservative parents. For a lot of that older Cuban generation, they left in the 1950s and they left with that 1950s mentality. That's when I was becoming aware that I didn't fit in to my parents' world and what they wanted. They, I mean, they wanted me to have chaperones when I went out and I I said, absolutely not. I will never go out. I'll become a nun. You know, <laughs> that scared them enough that um, they, they let me double date. Both women say their lives have been shaped by the struggle to define themselves as both American and Cuban. It's what some have begun calling life on the hyphen, an expression taken from the title of a 1994 book by exile poet and author Perez Fermat. I know from being a kid growing up straddling two cultures. I know what it's like to feel like a fish out of water amongst my parents' relatives who say, oh, you speak Spanish with a funny accent, which I do. I actually speak Spanish with an American accent. But I also know from being the fish out of water in American culture, too, from being the kid who, instead of having meatloaf and mashed potatoes at home, had picadillo and arroz blanco and frijoles negro, foods that when my friends came over, they were like, what's that? It's just what I eat, you know? I mean, garlic is a food group in Cuban culture. I'm sorry. In fact, when I was a child, my two best friends who lived across the street, American girls, her mom wouldn't let them eat dinner at my house when I would invite them to eat dinner because she said that we didn't eat healthy foods, that we didn't eat vegetables. And so we took to lying about what we would be eating. We would say, no, please let her stay. We're having, we're having arroz con pollo with uh, broccoli. <laughs> But for Myra Mendible, growing up in an exile community also meant being around people whose longing, resentment, and sense of loss colored her own feelings. Feelings that surfaced when she went to Havana for an academic conference in 1996. There was a little outdoor restaurant, and I sat there, and a man was playing the guitar, and I was looking out at the water, and suddenly I just started to weep. <laughs> I, I couldn't stop crying. I, I cried for my parents, for their loss you know, what am I doing here? Who am I? Where do I belong? You know, is this my home? I felt a sense of connection to the place, but yet I knew that I was different, that I was that I was not the same person I would have been had I lived there all these years, and so I couldn't undo that. She also says studying the history of her people has allowed her to gain a sense of perspective on the stories, the politics, and the rhetoric of a childhood spent among Miami's exile population. Putting everything into a historical context allowed me to see that, no, it, it, it wasn't the idyllic paradise that, um, that my father wanted me to believe. 
but at the same time, it wasn't just this banana republic, you know, with with no history other than dictators. In the end, reconciling herself to being both Cuban and American has helped Mendible reflect on the idea of identity. She believes that identifying oneself is something that happens over time by an ongoing process of association and choice. I think that having both helps me to recognize the, the fluidity of identity, the randomness in some cases, the contingency of it, and the aspects of it that we choose. We choose to hold on to certain values that we identify with certain aspects of our culture, and we choose to discard others. And I think that that's a healthy aspect of identity. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.